News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we've talked on the show recently about cyber attacks on companies and businesses and how frustrating it is for you as a customer when you are not told what's going on. It could be your bank. It could be, you know, anything that you deal with. And you're wondering, why the heck is this not available? What has happened to my information? Well, that could change, actually. There is a new federal bill. It's been recently tabled. And essentially, it says that businesses and other private sector organizations would be required to report ransomware incidents and other cyber attacks to the government. So this is all part of Liberal government efforts to protect critical infrastructure, and that's following, of course, last month's announcement that they were going to exclude Chinese vendors like Huawei and ZTE from our next-generation mobile networks. But this legislation essentially goes further, too. They're trying to protect the infrastructure in finance and energy and transport and telecommunications. So will this work? Is this a new tool that will protect you, the consumer? Well, joining us now is David Shipley, cybersecurity expert and CEO of Boceron Security. David, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So what do you think of this bill? Well, it's a great first step. And in terms of focusing on uh, critical areas that Canadians depend on, thinking banking, telecommunications, energy, and transportation sectors that are federally regulated, uh, it's excellent. And for telecommunications, which previously hasn't really had that many regulations about how secure they need to be, they've, they've done good work of their own uh, desires, their own accountability to shareholders, but now there is the same kind of uh, oversight that we've seen in the banking sector. So that's great. Unfortunately, the majority of attacks, however, aren't against these federally regulated sectors. We look at the uh, volume of attacks against um, sub-national entities. So I'm thinking provincial healthcare systems, public school systems like Regina Public Schools, which is still recovering from a ransomware attack, and private sector businesses that aren't federally regulated. This is not going to give the kind of transparency we need and the kind of assistance in the federal government that these attacked companies need. Okay, what kind of assistance do they need? Well, right now, a lot of times companies are told they shouldn't engage with federal authorities, even though there's a, there is a national cybersecurity center with excellent resources available to help companies recover, uh, talking to them is voluntary. They're not required to do that, which means all of a sudden they're insurers, they're legal folks. Others may say, okay, there's too much risk of potentially talking to the federal government about this. Maybe this, we can get this incident dealt with and it's not public. Uh, we don't want to take the reputation hit. And so they don't reach out. And and we've seen in the United States, one of the major ransomware gangs called NetWalker, only one in four victims contacted the FBI. So I I suspect that's pretty much the same here in Canada. Only one in four are getting the help they need. And so we need to change that math. Right. But do they want the help, I guess, is my question, David, because or would they rather keep it on the down low because they don't want people to realize that they have been vulnerable? It's exactly that. You're, you're spot on. A lot of people don't want the help because they also don't want the, the the spotlight. And this is not about shaming companies for being attacked. We don't we don't shame someone for for getting mugged or being robbed. That's not their fault. There was a criminal that committed that crime, and we need to treat cybercrime the same way. Um, we we need folks to report this because if we don't know the extent of the problem, how can government develop appropriate policing or you know in a national security context, maybe even military responses to gangs or countries that are 
um, hitting Canada for as much as almost $700 million last year in uh, economic damage. Okay, that is a lot. So what needs to happen for those other businesses to to get that help that they need? Well, the, the challenge is, is basically the federal government said, well, we're going to focus on these federally regulated industries. Uh, maybe we'll add more industries down the road, but we've created a template that maybe the provinces should follow. And the problem with that is essentially they're saying that each province is going to have to create their own mandatory breach reporting legislation to cover sectors that aren't covered by this new federal law. Um, The challenge with that is, one, our provincial government is going to take this up in all of their problems and challenges right now we're covering um, through the remaining stages of this pandemic. Number two, expecting Prince Edward Island to have the same resources as British Columbia or Ontario or Quebec is ridiculous. We are too small a country to try and deal this at 13 subnational levels. So I, I think it's unworkable. We do need a national coordinated response. Cyber is a national security issue. And I think the federal government needs to grow some courage to have a, a better dialogue with the provinces to do a coordinated response. So what kind of, what do I have? What kind of power do I have as an individual to find out if the company that I'm doing business with has been the subject of a ransomware attack or a cyber attack? As an individual consumer, little to no recourse. If you're a business, you may be able to have contracts set up requiring breach notification and uh, right to audit uh, the security of your suppliers, which depending on how big of a business are, you've got more muscle to flex. But for average Canadians, the uh, if, if it's not a privacy breach, and a lot of cyber attacks never result in privacy breaches, they result in data being encrypted or damaged onto that organization, um, you may never be told about it. Um, so that's where this gap um, for federally regulated industries is, is a good first step. But there's so many other businesses that get pummeled. I'm thinking about the mom and pop hardware stores that get hit with ransomware and others. And, and they're not going to get the help they need from this legislation. And so what, when those mom and pop stores get hit with these ransomware attacks, what do they do? Do they just pay? Uh, in many cases, three quarters of Canadian businesses just pay, and that often sets them up for a vicious cycle of getting hit again. Many of the insurance policies default to, well, it's cheaper to pay. It can be as much as you know, 10% of the cost of recovery just to pay the, the criminal. So it's awful tempting to do that. Um, and in other cases, they can't afford to even pay and the, their business fails. And some studies have said, you know, a significant portion of small businesses go under because of cyber attacks um, or the aftermath of cyber attacks. I mean, one small manufacturer that I, I remember, they got hit and they had a wire transfer cybercrime committed against them. And it was, you know, uh, several tens of thousands of dollars and they couldn't make payroll. Um, and that was an awful situation for them. So how do you protect yourself? If you're a business like that, is there any kind of protection available? So unfortunately, 47% of Canadian small businesses spend $0 on cybersecurity in their budget. Um, And then that's what we're seeing. And so there are services, there are things that you can do. There are free resources, getcybersafe.ca. It's got excellent information for individuals and small businesses. Um, But there are lots of services built into things like Office 365, You can do security awareness and training to teach your employees how to spot threats and stop them before they become uh, burn the business down fires. That's some of the work that my firm does. Um, And there are other security offerings. And one of the things I was on uh, Parliament Hill uh, two weeks ago lobbying the government for is tax credits and grants to small businesses to help them secure themselves 
in the wake of the pandemic, the, we know from uh, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, small businesses are tapped out. They can't take on more debt. They are getting squeezed by inflation and they're getting pummeled by criminals. So they need help now. Okay, so you're saying this doesn't go far enough then. Like, great start, but more. We need more. Absolutely. It's, it, 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 it's, it's securing the, the basics, but where we're getting hit goes so far beyond that. All right, David, thank you so much. You're always welcome. That's David Shipley, cybersecurity expert and CEO of Beauceron Security, uh, talking about this new federal bill that has recently been tabled that would require businesses and other private sector organizations to report ransomware incidents and other cyber attacks to the government. But as David just pointed out, he feels it doesn't go far enough. If you have a story to tell me, let me hear it. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, my favorite day was back in elementary school, the day that I looked forward to, the day that all kids looked forward to, hot dog day. Wasn't that a great day? Remember when you got to have that special lunch? You did the pre-order. Sometimes we had cheeseburgers from McDonald's. We had hot dogs. I mean, that was good stuff. Raji Sohal joins us now. Raji, do you remember hot dog day? Simi, I lived for hot dog day. I was one of those kids that only liked hot dogs, pizza, candy, and chocolate. So anybody who'd give it to me, uh, sports day included, like, yeah, I was all over it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a part of, I feel like, childhood. It was a special treat. We knew it was a special treat. It's not like we were eating it every day, right? No, I was eating it every day. I was eating okay, it every well, day. Well, that's it was different. Everywhere around <laughs> us. And it was the 80s. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And there was so much unhealthy food everywhere available all the time. And I think packaged foods were so much more accessible and popular. I would love going to my friend's house and like just filling up on Oreos. And the more sweets I had, the more sweets I wanted. And I'm talking about this because there are these new proposed healthy school food guidelines. And a West Van MLA, Karen Kirkpatrick, she's the liberal education critic, has been very outspoken about it. And she says that under the proposed guidelines, uh, that this food that would be uh, offered to the kids that's supposed to be lower in sodium and sugar uh, goes too far. And she says that it would be sad if there'd be no cupcake day or no pizza day, no bake sales, no chocolate almond fundraisers. And she's she's worried that schools will have no way of being creative in it, to fundraise in any other fashion, that it all has to come from uh, foods that are considered unhealthy. Simi, obviously, you know my opinion on this. I think we are so messed up that when we think sugar, we think fun. We don't have control over that. I have a major sweet tooth. We know just from scientific research that uh, sugar activates part of the brain and people get addicted to it. And today's a funny day for me to talk about this because it's my kid's birthday. Yeah. And now the pandemic is over. We're allowed to bring food into school. So what did you take? Did you take carrot sticks or did you send cupcakes? Well, I offered to bake something. I love baking. And I make really nice chocolate cupcakes that uh, are made with zucchini. They don't taste like zucchini, but, you know, a little bit of zucchini in there and they're delicious and they're moist. But because the last kid brought in these huge uh, donuts, I mm, donuts. Um, I'm not going <laughs> to shame. So she said she wants these big donuts. And I was like, sure, we'll bring you guys massive donuts. They're made with whatever gross oil. They have little <laughs> tablespoons of sugar in each donut. <laughs> but they you're not judging. You're not judging. 
So I am like, okay, you know, I'll bring in the donuts. And some people are going to hear this. They're going to go, oh, yeah, well, what's one donut? You know, let kids be kids. It's a donut the size of a child's head is what you're talking about. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I said to her, you know, I wonder if I should include a knife for the teacher to cut them up. And she looked at me like, cut them up. No, no, no. Each kid gets a huge donut. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, let's do this. But it's not just one donut. Because on sports day, they're having, you know, mini Kit Kats, artificial sweetener lollipops. Birthday parties are happening all the time there's always someone's birthday it's always freezy day it's always popsicle day so there's actually always treats and <laughs> sorry I'm, I, have, I'm, I shouldn't laugh Gord, but you're turning into Gord McDonald because you were getting yourself worked up more and more and more about I am this so issue. much more worked up and hyper about this than Gord has ever been about anything and I think that when kids are so young and you're trying to teach them about nutrition you you got to do it wholesale or it doesn't work. Like kids can have sugar so, at home. Kids can have wait, sugar at the weekend. Okay. Are they you saying then, Raji, are you saying then that you support these guidelines that would ban all this food from coming to school? 100%. People are going to come at me with, oh, you believe in the nanny state. And yes, I do. You know, there's this famous chef in Britain, you're aware of, I'm sure, Jamie Oliver. He started this whole campaign, a huge program to teach people in the UK about the effects of sugar. They love their sweeties in the UK way, way more than we do here. And some fringe parents were so angry about it. They were seen at the school fence, like on the school grounds, squeezing king-sized chocolate bars <laughs> through the fence to their kids. I'm sorry. That mental picture is just too much. Please I look up the pictures. It's love, incredible. I love Worked Up Raji. That was very entertaining. Thank oh, you I'm very not much. Oh, no, I bet you're not. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of you out there are feeling very strongly about the Cullen Commission's final report into money laundering in this province. It didn't specifically point fingers and say, that's what went wrong, or that's what happened. But clearly it showed that we had many issues over the years, but we also had many opportunities to say, whoa, something is wrong here, and we need to dig deeper into this and find out what it is and stop it. And that didn't happen. No matter who was in charge of the file, successive BC Liberal cabinet ministers and Premier Christy Clark, it just seemed like they said, oh, that's interesting. But nobody said, what's going on there? We have to find out more. But we thought, let's dig a little deeper into this, what we know, what we still don't know. Joining us now is John Hua, Global News reporter, who has been extensively following this story for the last few years. Good morning, John. Good morning, Simi. What questions are you still left with after this report? Well, I think the most obvious question that everyone is asking, including myself, is the why. You know, we heard very strong language that there were repeated failures within the system and that there was an overall lack of will to act, as you just mentioned. Um, There is no doubt that the bags, the duffel bags, boxes, shopping bags of stacks of $20 bills that were coming into casinos, um, common sense would lead someone to believe that that was criminal cash or could definitely be illicit cash. And the question that was not answered was, why did no one stop it? Why did no one take that extra step to question, to rule that out as um, not criminal cash before uh, letting it go into the cash cage and filtering through casinos and other parts of our province? And we asked the commissioner, Austin Cullen, that quite a few times yesterday in terms of what drove that lack of will, you know, what drove these failures. And there are options. You know, was it incompetence? Were they just not good at their jobs? Was there a lack of oversight? Was it willful blindness because there was too much success being had within the casinos? Was it ultimately, you know, greed? 
Um, and when we asked him those questions repeatedly, he just did not have an answer. So I feel that many truly believe that this commission did not go far enough in answering that key question. Right, because like when I was thinking, when I heard you say that, I'm thinking, well, the answer is yes to all of it, probably, because a little of all of those things were involved in people kind of looking the other way or not paying enough attention or just letting this happen. It seemed like a lot of neglect. Yeah, and that's why we, you know, the two things that the public wanted when they pushed for this public inquiry was truth and accountability. Now, we've got the truth part. Um, The commissioner did a good job really going through all the facts, um, you know, exposing the fact that there were multiple opportunities throughout this entire, you know, 10, 15, 20-year period to identify that money laundering was occurring in casinos especially and to put a stop to it. So there's the truth. But the other half of that equation is accountability, and that is something that I feel that many believe that is lacking from this entire process. And once again, when people pushed for the public um, inquiry in the first place, you know, they had a lot of examples like the Charbonneau Commission, where things could be, you know, passed over to law enforcement in tandem, and that would be a separate uh, separate process. But, you know, if there was true fault being found, that could be dealt with. And it just doesn't seem like there was, this was a truth-finding exercise, but this was not an accountability-finding exercise. That's a great way to put it. Uh, John, from what you've read in the report then, could you maybe explain to us where these these conditions were brought to the attention of the people in charge and nothing was done? Like, were these ministers, were Rich Coleman, Shirley Bond, Mike DeYoung, were the premier at the time, Christy Clark, told, and, and what were they told? So the easy answer is yes, they were told, and they were told every step of the way. A lot of times when um, some of these ministers that were then responsible for the gaming file picked up that file, um, they were all given briefings. And in those briefings, you know, to certain, you know, different levels of severity, but there was always a concern about, you know, this flow of, of, of what seemed to be suspicious money, stacks of $20 bills coming into casinos. Now, what the commissioner found was while a lot of concerns were being raised by, you know, the reports from the service providers or the casino operators themselves, um, there were a lot of um, reports and concerns raised by uh, the GPEB investigators, that's the regulator for the gaming industry, as well as BCLC's own, um, you know, the Lottery Corporation's own investigators or anti-money laundering investigators, they were all raising concerns At times, the ministers were also given mixed messages from the B.C. Lottery Corporation themselves. And that is another reason, which we can get into later, why the commissioner was so hard on the B.C. Lottery Corporation. But regardless of that, if you're getting mixed messages, common sense would push the public to believe that if you're the person at at the top, if Mm -hmm. you're the minister responsible for gaming and you have ultimately the power to do something about it, you'll get down to the bottom, bottom of it. Instead, they only kind of took half measures to, to sort of deal with it, but obviously that never once stopped the flow of money going into casinos. Clearly. Okay, let's dive into that BCLC portion a little bit more here. What did BCLC know and what didn't they do? So the BC Lottery Corporation, amongst its own ranks, um, were alerted to you know, the stack 
stacks and stacks and stacks of uh, in duffel bags of of uh, suspicious money coming into casinos. Um, they had an, an odd relationship with what was supposed to be the regulator, and they argued who actually was in, indeed in charge, which was GPEB, um, the Gaming Policy and Enforcement Branch, and, and they were also raising concerns. Now, the reason why the commissioner was so hard on the BC Lottery Corporation was despite these c- constant concerns being raised to the BC Lottery Corporation, they seemed to continue to push a counter-narrative. So there were there was a lot of evidence that was brought up to the commission where there were internal memos, even for you know amongst staff, internal newsletters saying this is a myth, this is not dirty money, everything that you're reading in the media is wrong, and this was happening at the same time that their own people were raising concerns to them, saying you know we don't think it's wrong, we do think this is dirty money, we do think money laundering is happening into, into casinos, and those same messages were also filtering up to government. And one of the most damning things in the Cullen Commission, and again, this is an 1,800-page report, right. you've really got to dive into the nitty-gritty of it, was a lot of that discourse and a lot of that language that they used was indeed, the commissioner found, was indeed motivated by the fact that if any measures were brought in that might have, been, that have, might have gone too far, especially with the VIPs that were, you know, bringing in $100,000 or more at one time, um, you know, around the 2014 area. If that went too far, then they kept on reminding everyone that that would have an ultimate impact on revenue. And yes, it was their duty as a, you know, it's their job to make profit for the government. It is their duty to tell people, but the commissioner found it went more than that. They were definitely sending the message this is going to hurt revenue too much. So if you're going to put in any measures, you need to make sure that it is the minimum, not the minimum, but it, it will have the, the least impact on revenues that it can. Right. And, and people heeded that advice. And that is partly why we got into the situation where we did, where, you know, even at the height of this, when, you know, there were, you know, 26, 2015, when there were just, you know, just an, a massive amount of money, I think there was like $27 million in suspicious tra- cash transactions in July of 2015 alone. During that time, the casino providers and BCLC were still trying to raise betting limits. We're still trying to expand VIP gaming. So again, that tells you something that yeah. at the very peak, at the apex of this problem, there was no holding back. There was no wanting to, to rein this in, to, to figure out this problem. It was, let's, let's keep, keep the money flowing. Let's, let's go bigger. That is exactly it, John. I think that's what bothers so many people about this. Listen, thank you so much for talking about it with us this morning. My pleasure. Appreciate that. John Hawk, Global News reporter, uh, breaking down the Cullen Commission Inquiry report. We'll be talking to Attorney General David Eby about it as well coming up. Make sure you get your comments into me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, we've talked a lot this morning about previous provincial governments and the trouble that they're having right now dealing with some of the decisions they made. Well, let's talk about the current provincial government perhaps having some of those issues as well. The Royal BC Museum is expected to cost almost a billion dollars. And for the moment it was announced, it has been the subject of so much controversy. And now we're getting a better idea of what the public feels about it. Joining us now is Shachi Curl, president of Angus Reid, to talk about their latest polling on this issue. Good morning, Shachi. Good morning, Simi. Boy, it's not often that you can get so many people to agree on something, but it sure does seem to be the case with this museum, doesn't it? This one was uh, the reverse of an easy layup for the government. I, I don't know what the reverse term is, but this yeah, exactly. is a pretty, a pretty big fumble. Look, I think we're going to call this one an own goal. Do you know? An own goal. We yeah. can call it an own goal. Yeah. Uh, when, when we put this in the context of something like the money laundering debacle. Uh, in terms of scope, obviously the scope of one is is much more significant when you're talking about billions and billions of dollars, proceeds of crime flowing unchecked into the province. But the thing about the museum, to me, as you and I both know, is it is this physical building that is a, a much easier and very obvious thing for people to get their heads around and point to and go, that is not a good use of, of government money in terms of a rebuild. And indeed, 70% of British Columbians say if it was up to them, presented with five, the same five options that government explored, everything from the range of a full rebuild to, to, to do nothing, uh, the vast majority say they do not support the rebuilding of this museum. That is a huge number. So 70% of people said they do not support it, and that's pretty low numbers for people who do. Are there reasons why they feel that way, Shachi? We didn't get so much into the why. We focused more on the what. But, of course, we, we don't need to, to scratch too far to, to dig deep into to some of the, the more obvious reasons. This has been a very challenging period in terms of uh, people accessing health care. There's been a lot of talk about in an inability to find family doctors. So health has been a big issue. There are also some pretty significant headwinds that both government and British Columbians themselves are facing around rising costs of living, inflation, the cost of a liter of gas, all of the things you're talking about on your program on any given day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are stressed and they are looking to the things that they see their government spending money on or, or saying they're going to spend money on. And, uh, and just as we're prioritizing at the household level, I think there is an expectation of, you know, really being very focused on priorities uh, in terms of public money as well. And this is why, in the Premier's own words, it landed with such a thud. It really did. So you asked people to identify their top priorities, and they said cost of living, health care, and housing affordability. And I guess the other big concern here for the government is you then asked them how the government is performing on those issues, and it turns out not very well. Yeah, people are are feeling a bit frustrated around government response on all of these issues. Now, granted, again, these aren't the easiest things to untangle, but, you know, housing affordability, a big part of what uh, this NDP government campaigned on uh, and haven't really been able to turn the tide very much on that front. Um, and and uh, again, with, with some of these economic issues, uh, there are competing uh, desires either to see greater relief uh, 
and or to see um, uh, less perhaps interference because they're you know you've got other people who are worried about what are the long term implications of, of basically unchecked spending. So these are these are big jammy problems, and for the NDP to uh, this government to get sort of tripped up on its own shoelaces on something that wasn't really much of a jammy problem right. uh, is 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 perhaps one that, uh, that it's an own goal they're regretting. I I have to point out though, Simi, um, that so far we're not necessarily seeing. Uh, a bump or an advantage for the opposition, BC Liberals under Kevin Falcon or whatever they're going to end up calling themselves um, as as a result of this. So the advantage or the payoff hasn't necessarily come to the opposition yet on this issue. All right. I'm sure you're going to keep polling on that one and we'll be talking to you. So Shachi, thank you. My pleasure. Shachi Curl, president of Angus Reid, talking about their latest polling. And if you want to weigh in on that, please do. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So where do we go from here? After years of talking about money laundering in this province, we've had several reports, now a commission and a final report. What do we do with all of this information? Well, joining us now to talk about that is David Eby, BC's Attorney General. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Are, are you happy with the result? Are you happy with the report? I am. I, uh, I'm really grateful for the work the commissioner did and, uh, and his team. Uh, the recommendations provide us with a roadmap. He really clearly identifies the areas where the system has been failing. Uh, the context, uh, you'll recall, of, of this report was in part the collapse of the largest anti-money laundering prosecution in Canadian history, a uh, federal prosecution that didn't make it to court. And the question we were asking is, why can't we seem to get uh, the arrest, prosecutions, and imprisonment of money launderers? And that answer is in this report, um, failings at some key points in the system. And and in particular, uh, failings, uh, unfortunately, from the, the federal level of responsibility and the commissioner saying the province is going to have to step up and take over those areas. Right. Well, we clearly know, though, from the report that there were lots of warning signs here. So are you confident that with warning signs, if they happened again, somebody would do the right thing and say, listen, we've got to check this out and make sure this doesn't happen? Well, I think there have been, uh, uh, you know, there has been public education and uh, and education of a bunch of different sectors in British Columbia about this. I know when I meet with the realtors or with the law society or with the notaries, they're very uh, keen to point out all the changes they're putting in place to uh, to deal with money laundering at their level. At the provincial government, we put a bunch of uh, uh, different measures in place uh, that assists Revenue Canada and police in detecting criminality, um, but. Uh, I am not uh, confident, given the findings of the report, that the federal areas of responsibility that we were counting on, the FinTrack, the anti-money laundering agency that takes up to three months to respond to police requests for information, the uh, trade-based money laundering task force that was announced just a couple of years ago that's already defunct, uh, the funding for additional enforcement that hasn't materialized in the province. Uh, there, there are really significant weaknesses in the system right now. Uh, that allow this activity to continue until the province steps up and fills those gaps. Do we even know if anyone in the federal government will read this report? Well, I hope so. It's an 1,800-page report. They got it yesterday uh, because of the rules around our Public Inquiry Act. We weren't allowed to give them an advanced copy. Uh, and so we're going to have to amend that to make sure that we can do that in future. But in any event, um, uh, the, the hope is, my hope is, there's a new minister on the file uh, Minister Mendicino, uh, that he will look at this with fresh eyes, that he will feel embarrassed, uh, as we all should as Canadians, about the state of our anti-money laundering uh, framework nationally, 
uh, and that he will um, have the support of the prime minister and the federal cabinet in addressing this issue uh, once and for all. Uh, in the meantime, we won't wait for the feds because we've been counting on them for a while and they've let us down, unfortunately. So uh, the commissioner has recommended the province take a role around regulating money service businesses, those exchange shops that sell precious metals, one of which in Richmond and an anonymous storefront was alleged to have uh, had a couple hundred million dollars pass through its doors in a one-year period. Uh, they got a license from the feds while they were under uh, criminal investigation. Uh, so these kinds of issues, uh, the province will have to take over and, uh, and uh, the recommendations provide a map for us to do that. Okay, so how soon do you think you could get that kind of system up and running? Well, the good news is we've been uh, working on this issue uh, throughout the inquiry. We haven't been waiting for the final report. So some of the commissioner's recommendations around the gaming sector are already implemented. We passed a law in 2018 reforming uh, some of the aspects of the, of the Gaming Control Act and, uh, and addressing some of the issues the commissioner raised in his report. Uh, other areas um, show a lot of promise. So there's, uh, he recommends that we establish our own enforcement team, that we collect data around the sale of luxury goods of $10,000 or more bought with cash, that we uh, oversee the uh, and, and uh, register the export of gray market cars and, uh, and, and other federal responsibilities. But he says, hey, good news, you can pay for this uh, by uh, really souping up the uh, civil forfeiture office uh, when he looks at the seizures made by that office and the structure we have right now. Uh, it, they pale in comparison to seizures made in similar jurisdictions in the United States and in New Zealand, for example, or areas he looked at. He said we should be using something called unexplained wealth orders, where someone is politically exposed, uh, they're a politician or a public servant, and they have um, money that is really hard to understand where it came from or uh, appear to be involved in criminality. And they have, uh, they're buying homes and luxury goods. Uh, that government could apply to court for an order that this person explain where the money is coming from, and if they can't, that those goods could be seized. And he believes that that could fund and more uh, all of these initiatives. Were you disappointed, though, about the fact that there was no link to housing unaffordability? Because that's something you've been talking about for years. Well, I've, I've absolutely been concerned about money laundering in our real estate industry, and I think most British Columbians have. Uh, and if they read the report, they'll see that they were right to be concerned about that. Uh, that there are huge vulnerabilities in the real estate sector at every stage, from the financing of development all the way through to the sale uh, by realtors. And there are some really compelling stories uh, in the report about mortgage brokers, about private lending, uh, about the assembly of properties by people alleged to be involved in criminal activity. What the commissioner finds is he was unable to determine uh, an influence on prices uh, in our market uh, based on money laundering. And he says that the big issue facing us right now is a scarcity of housing, and there's not enough housing being built. And I, I couldn't agree more with him about that. I've been on the campaign trail with local governments around getting more housing approved to deal with that issue. But um, simply because the commissioner wasn't able to conclude that money laundering was raising prices, A, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be cracking down and making sure that the system is uh, is protected from money launderers, because the commissioner found there were serious vulnerabilities. And B, um, uh, doesn't mean that, uh, certainly when I started this work about uh, about 10 years ago when we were doing the uh, advocacy around international money in our housing market, it uh, doesn't mean that the foreign buyer tax, the uh, speculation of vacancy tax, and so on, haven't had a significant impact and uh, in the direction that we would want. Right. So you still feel like there was something there? Well, I, I, I don't. Uh, the commissioner does. The commissioner wrote uh, six or seven chapters about uh, the real estate market, mortgages, private lending, uh, realtors, the role of lawyers and others uh, with some really serious recommendations for the province and uh, and celebrated uh, the establishment of our beneficial ownership registry for real estate. 
uh, and made some suggestions about improving it. Um, so the commissioner recognizes and, and uh, recommends to us uh, that we tighten up controls around uh, the real estate market, but did find uh, that he wasn't able to find evidence uh, that um, uh, the recent rise in prices was connected to money laundering. And, and I agree. I mean, the, the rise in prices currently, whether it's rents or for purchase, is the fact that we had the lowest number of listings in the history of the MLS in December, uh, while we had the highest immigration of British Columbia uh, in 60 years. Uh, so these factors are uh, connected, but... Um, but uh, in, in any event, the big issue we face around housing right now is the scarcity of housing. Now, how much did this whole process cost? How much did the Cullen Inquiry cost? Uh, the original budget was $15 million. Uh, they were delayed by COVID, uh, which uh, increased costs a bit. And so they're at about the $18 million mark. Okay. So, and you feel that we got our money's worth of this? I do. I think if, it, uh, if this report brings the feds back to the table, um, that would be great news. But I also um, think that this report was critically important to answer some questions for British Columbians, uh, particularly why it is that uh, um, in our province it appears that uh, people are able to and have been able to openly launder money without uh, criminal consequence, uh, why it is that, um, uh, that there seems to be such a challenge around this. And uh, there are a set of recommendations for us uh, from the commissioner that are going to pay that back uh, many, many times over. So it's a very good investment for the province uh, to get to the bottom of this and get these recommendations. And also, there were serious questions about our political system. Was there corruption within the public service? Was there corruption among the political level? And uh, people do need to have those questions answered in terms of their confidence in the system. And to have someone independently look at those issues was important. Yeah, let me just quickly ask you about BCLC, BC Lottery Corporation. Clearly, there were moments when the Lottery Corporation could have and should have done something. Are you confident that now that wouldn't happen? Yeah, we've, we've turned over the executive team at the BC Lottery Corporation as well as the board. It's a different organization today, and that's something the commissioner has recognized that uh, on forming uh, uh, government in 2017, both the regulator and BC Lottery Corporation uh, dramatically shifted their cultures, and, uh, and we're in a much better place in relation to casinos. But we can't rest on that. Um, there are many more vulnerable sectors the commissioner has identified for us to do this work. All right, well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks for having This is Mornings with Simi. We all look forward to summer, don't we? We've got months and months of rain, and then we just want to see the sun come out. So far this year, we haven't really seen a whole lot of sun to speak of. And now we have a glimpse at what a Metro Vancouver winter might look like. And for more on that, and I don't think it's going to be good news, here's our contributor, Raji Sohal. (laughs) Yeah, well, it depends on how you see your winters. Do you like to be skiing or do you prefer to be able to just walk around outside because it's that mild? I always feel, Simi, that we should be rewarded for going through bad weather. So in my opinion, I think it'd be nice that after such a cool and wet spring, we were rewarded with a mild winter and that's not going to happen. So the climate and forecast modeling shows that uh, we are not getting a mild winter. We're going to get the opposite. We should be uh, bracing ourselves for a cold winter. We should expect snow and lots of it, lots of it. I'm not a big skier, but I'm thinking, hey, maybe this is the year I get into it. You, you could, but are you ready for it though? Like, are you? Re- I always felt like with skiing, oh, it's going to cost you so much money. You've got two little kids. And then you know what? You're going to learn how to do it this year, Raji. And then it's going to be a few years before there's that much snow again. 
<laughs> That's quite possible. But they say the way to enjoy winters is to just like jump on board, get on that bandwagon with activities. And so I think I think this might be the year that we we finally go for it since, you know, it's yeah, we're going to have a lot of snow again. And I talked to a climate scientist, Bill Merrifield. He's a scientist with Environment and Climate Change Canada. And he, for a living, he applies these climate models to seasonal and even decade predictions. So he looks back at decades and looks forward as well. And he reiterated what we know that climate change uh, has set us up for a tendency uh, toward warmer average temperatures over time. But then within that gradual climb, uh, we have variations. And he said El Nino and La Nina have everything to do with these big weather swings in seasons. Now, I haven't been too sad about our current weather because we've had a bit of sunshine here and there. And so I also remind myself that things could be a lot worse. But it turns out that the weather we're having now, Simi, has a lot to do with last winter. And La Nina means we've also got this cold winter ahead of us. Here's Bill Merrifield. I would say that our current weather has a lot to do with what happened this um, previous winter. Uh, which uh, in the Pacific uh, Ocean down near the equator, we had what's known as a uh, La Nina. And uh, this is sort of the the flip side of what uh, many listeners may be more familiar with, uh, El Nino. So whereas El Nino uh, is a disturbance in the temperatures of the uh, tropical Pacific, which tends to bring us uh, warm uh, winters and springs in uh, Western Canada, La Nina will do the opposite and tend to bring us a... uh, uh, cold winter with a with a hangover right into spring, and that's uh, that's what we've been experiencing uh, probably much longer than usual. Uh, so, um, what what is um, a bit unusual about the current situation is that um, we did have a La Nina last winter, and actually the winter before as well. Uh, but the models are telling us that we will have uh, an unusual. Um, um, sometimes we're calling it now a triple dip. Uh, La Nina, so uh, will appear again in the fall. And um, if this does happen, it would be uh, tending to bring us uh, cool conditions again in Western Canada next winter and possibly right into the spring. Ooh, a triple dip and not a good one. Okay, so what you're saying here, Raji, is that we should buy our snow shovels now and stock up on salt now. It oh. is something to consider. You you can't bank absolutely everything on these models. Um, longer range forecasts are not, you know, 100%. But I personally, Simi, I feel mentally better prepared now that I have an idea of what to expect. Like if I was thinking, oh, we're going to coast on a nice, mild winter, I might make different plans. But now I'm thinking, yeah, get those snow tires in time because I was one of those people who got it too late last winter. Uh-huh. I'm going to go <laughs> ahead and admit that on air. Um, and maybe I'm going to adjust some of our local travel plans around it. Like maybe we are not going to head into uh, the interior or anything like that. And of course, maybe we're going to take up skiing. Um, But we have been here before, so it's not totally new territory. In the last two winters, uh, we we did have this um, uh, La Nina situation. And if you you go back in time and uh, look at sort of the winter and spring of uh, 2008, 2011, if, if sort of memory goes back that far, uh, those are two years where we also had um, quite cool springs. And uh, again, that was uh, 
result of this uh, La Nina phenomenon. So, um, so in the past two years, we had that uh, to some extent, and we do uh, our early indications will expect it again um, next winter and possibly into spring. Um, that's not to say this has happened every year in uh, uh, 2015 and into the winter uh, sp- spring of 2016, uh, we had the opposite uh, La Nina, uh, sorry, El Nino, and that actually brought us uh, very uh, warm conditions. Um, if anyone remembers the uh, winter of 2010, the Olympics, where there were difficulties with um, melting snow, uh, et cetera, that, that was also an El Nino winter. Oh boy, I remember that vividly. Okay, so uh, it sounds like it's going to be a cold one, but here's my other feeling about this, Raji, is whenever we say like, oh, this is going to happen weather-wise, it doesn't. Hmm, well, if we can apply that logic here, then we should say it's going to be an extremely cold winter and we're going to get way too much snow so that we could instead get something really mild. Well, I like oh, I like the sorcery at work doing. there. And yeah, I see what you're doing. <laughs> and I don't mind uh, uh, attracting some, some warmer weather. He also mentioned that later on this summer, just in case you've been wondering, are we going to get a real summer? We are. So we do expect that temperatures, are, he said, are going to warm up, not right now, but eventually. Um, and that hopefully we will not be uh, having another, uh, what he called, so-called heat dome. So-called heat dome. Uh, do they not like that term? Yeah. Well, you know what I've been noticing, Simi? I've spoke to many meteorologists and people who look at at weather and climate in the last year, and I find that they are hesitant to use the word heat dome themselves. I love I love drama in words and I love rhetoric. So like, I loved the word heat dome. It was so um, all encompassing of how intense that heat was, that heat wave was. Um, but uh, he referred to it uh, as a, a, I think he said intense heat wave, right. which it was. I can see why they feel that way though, right? Because meteorologists have all sorts of terms that they use. And so they referred to it as a heat dome because they were, you know, the atmospheric pressure, the buildup, that dome that happens. And then people went off and ran with it and it turned into meaning something quite extreme. So now they probably feel like they can't use that phrase as much anymore, like atmospheric river. They used it to refer to what happened last November. And now we assume we connect atmospheric river with flooding. Yeah, an atmospheric river. I mean, that is such a dramatic term too. I think there's a there's a fear of those terms getting away from us and then exactly. people using them too loose, loosely, too easily to refer to too many things. I know, so true. Well, thank you very much for the forecast, Raji. We appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know when you hear that mosquito kind of buzzing around you and you're kind of trying to get rid of it and then you slap it? And you get it. And you can't get rid off of you fast enough, right? Don't do that. Our next guest actually wants you to not only hold on to that mosquito that you just slapped and killed, but send it to him. And we're going to find out why that is. Dan Peach joins us now, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia Zoology Department. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Dan, why? Why do you want us to do this? <laughs> well, um, Part of my research, we're very curious uh, to answer some questions about what mosquitoes are where in BC and where they might, uh, where their distributions might shift uh, going forward into the future as, as our climate changes. And, you know, BC uh, is a very big place and uh, can't be everywhere at once. And so we're asking the public to sort of help out. And if they're uh, out and about or, or uh, having a picnic or, or sitting in the backyard or whatever and something tries to bite them, um, slap that mosquito and uh, put it in, uh, in an envelope and mail it to us, and then we can 
use some genetic techniques to identify it and get that data without having to drive all over the province. <laughs> okay, I'm fascinated by this. So if I do this, I have to put it in an envelope, but where do I send it and what other information do you need? Like, obviously, you need to know, like, where I was. Like, do you need to know what time of day it was, what the weather was, anything like that? Sure. So uh, to, uh, to start off, where to send it to is to the Ben Matthews Lab at UBC Zoology. And the address is 4200-6270, University Boulevard, Vancouver, BC, postal code V6T1Z4. And um, what we'd like you to do is just, you know, fold a, fold that uh, squished mosquito up in a piece of paper, um, put your, uh, either, you know, your address or your cross street or um, a latitude and longitude from Google Maps on there. Uh, the date that it happened, and, you know, if you want to hear back from us as to what it was, throw your email in there, and then just mail it to us. And that's it. So what are you going to do with this? Explain to me this process. <laughs> sure, sure. So we have more than 50 different species of mosquito here in BC, um, and we will be, be taking these uh, squished-up mosquitoes that get sent in. We'll grind them up even further, so that's why it doesn't really matter if they're squished. Um, we'll use some genetic tools to extract part of their, their DNA, and you get uh, basically a barcode from that, which we can compare to a, a database of uh, uh, barcodes um, for, for known species and uh, match it up with, with, uh, with the species that it's from. And then we can tell, hey, great, so we know what species that it is, this is. And then because of the information that's uh, been included in that, we can, we can say it was at this location on this date. And that'll give us a handle on, on what species are, are where currently. Um, but then we will be taking all of this data and running it through some uh, species distribution and habitat models um, under different climate change scenarios to sort of see, okay, as, as our climate changes, you know, 40 or 50 years in the future, where might uh, the distributions of these things shift? And so, for instance, m- um, might we see West Nile vectors uh, start, start moving farther north than they are currently? Or might we see um, species from the coast uh, moving into the interior or as, uh, you know, species from the interior uh, moving uh, further north or further west as, as things heat up and dry out? Um, and so these are some of the questions that we're hoping to answer. Okay, how adaptable are mosquitoes to changes in our atmosphere? Because I keep thinking about like the mosquitoes and the whole role in Jurassic Park, right? So how? <laughs> so we know they've been around for a long time, but how adaptable or changeable are they? So, so mosquitoes as a whole, there are uh, almost thirty five hundred species around the the world, and they can inhabit almost any um, any type of habitat. So there are there are desert species, there are arctic species, there are um, rainforest and, and jungle species, there are uh, alpine uh, species. Um, so, so if, if there is if there is water, um, even for just a short period of time, uh, mosquitoes can generally exploit that niche. Um, you know, an individual species will will have a, a specific niche, which uh, may um, it may be able to adapt a bit within. Um, but mosquitoes as a whole, there will if there's water, there will be uh, some mosquito there uh, at some point in the year. Okay, and what kind? I know people think that mosquitoes are just pests. But what kind of purpose do they serve, Dan? Sure, sure. Um, so it's it's becoming uh, increasingly um, something that we're aware of that you know mosquitoes can can pollinate. Although we're we're not sure exactly how much a single mosquito can contribute to pollination. But when you think of you know just some of the environments you get into, and there's a ton of mosquitoes, uh, it it wouldn't take much for for mosquitoes as a whole to be important to pollination. Um, there's also a nutrient transfer role where uh, uh, most mosquito species in the larval stage are filter feeders, right? So they're eating algae and decomposing organic matter, and then they develop into an adult, and then they fly off, and either something eats them or they die and decompose, and they've 
um, um, basically uh, moved nutrients from an aquatic environment into a, a terrestrial environment, not entirely unlike salmon. Um, so there, there are, are um, ecological roles for them that we're becoming increasingly aware of. But traditionally, we uh, focus on them biting us. And so that's where most of our, our right. research focus has been. But uh, that, that might be changing. Okay, Dan, how does one make mosquitoes their life's work? How did you get to this point? <laughs> sure. Uh, so I, I started uh, grad school and I was, I was looking for something to research and, you know, with mosquitoes because of the health aspect. And uh, they're just they're such a nuisance when they bite you. Um, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, there's better funding out there for them for research that's done on them because that there are uh, applications for it. But um, I, I quickly became uh, interested in the I call it the secret life of mosquitoes. It's basically everything mosquitoes do that isn't uh, directly involved with us. But it's it's still important because then we can exploit that information to um, you know harness uh, their ecology to try and control them or to manage them or to to know where we should focus our efforts. But um, everything from from you know how mosquitoes pollinate. Um, to, to what other animals they, they interact with, and even, you know, the things they bite that, that aren't humans. Like, for instance, here in BC, we have species that uh, feed on frogs, um, and it's only the females that blood feed. The, the males exclusively feed on floral nectar, and the basic food of, of all adult females is floral nectar, but for some species, the females need blood. And so we have species here that, for instance, will, will take blood um, from frogs, and they'll, they'll use uh, that to develop their eggs. Um, lots obviously be, bite people. We have some bite birds, some that bite mammals. Really? Um, but when you... Oh yeah, they'll, they'll they'll feed on a whole a whole bunch of different things. You even um, you get into into more tropical places. For instance, in Florida, uh, it was recently discovered that there's a, a species where um, the females will will bite leeches and worms to to take their blood uh, to develop uh, the mosquito eggs. So, um, so there's, they're equal there's opportunity, whole... is what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. They'll uh, you know depending on the species, some species specialize in different things, but mosquitoes as a whole are very opportunistic. Um, they will adapt. This is so fascinating to me because, you know, most of us just think of them as pests. Has, has anybody ever tried this before, Dan? Has anybody ever said, mail me your dead mosquitoes before that you know of? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of for mosquitoes, no. I'm, I'm sure people have done it for other insects. Uh, I, I think there was a study in New York that did it with cockroaches, if I'm remembering correctly. But uh, we thought this might be an interesting way to, to address, uh, uh, you know, what's going on here in B.C., all right, well, let's see if we can help you out. So let's run through this one more time, Dan. What do you need sure. people to do to help you out? Sure. So if you swat a mosquito and you're interested, please mail it to us. Um, fold it up in a piece of paper and put it in an envelope with uh, the location, either an address or a cross street or latitude and longitude coordinates from Google Maps, um, as well as a date. Put your email in there if you're interested in hearing back from us as to what species it is. And then mail it to us um, at the Ben Matthews Lab at UBC Zoology. Address 4200-6270, University Boulevard, Vancouver, BC, postal code V6T1Z4. I should also mention they can just Google Ben Matthews Lab UBC and they'll get info too. Dan, thank you so much for telling us about it today. Hey, it's been my pleasure. You have a great day. You too. That's Dan Peach, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia Zoology Department who needs your mosquito. That's, I have to admit, one of the more unusual requests that we have talked about on the show.